Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. And we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So when you find it, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be here once again together. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. Uh, We recognize that these are your words, Lord, and we pray that um, you would move us, that we would leave here different than we came in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Wow, that was horrible. Thank you, Ben. Good morning. All right, so it's a beautiful day. Like you said, we get to celebrate some baptisms afterwards. It's awesome. Um, I always like starting a new series because one of the things that I enjoy doing so much is kind of the introduction to the series. We just kind of get a feel for what's going on. So we've called this series The Good Life. And um, I guess to begin, when you hear The Good Life, what do you think of? Not Ecclesiastes. Um, This is something I had to wrestle with for a while. Like my whole life, I think up till even now, I still wrestle with what is this good life that I'm seeking? You know, everyone in here is going to have a different answer to that. And some of it's going to be dependent upon how old you are, some of it's going to be dependent upon what you've experienced in life. What I have learned, and this is just because I'm getting older, I guess, is that most people will define the good life as what they felt like they were missing as they were younger. Isn't that interesting? So we have a tendency, I think, as people to look at what we don't, don't have or what we're longing for to, exp- to say that if, if I had that or if this was the case, then life would be good. So we spend a lot of time thinking about what we don't have. A lot. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of my testimony just so this helps kind of sit. So I grew up in what would be considered a Christian home. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, it was an American Christian home, which meant we went to church when it was convenient. I knew who Jesus was. I went to a Christian school that my mom worked at in elementary school, and I remember coming to faith in Jesus from a redheaded lady at a chapel who presented the gospel through a story about a tugboat. And I don't remember the story, and I don't even remember what the tugboat had to do with the gospel. I just remember that's what the Lord used. And at the end, it was like this old school, like who wants to receive Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? And I'm in this assembly of probably 400 students. It was a huge Christian school, and we're in the the, the church auditorium. And they said, if you want to receive Jesus, stand up. And I stood up without hesitation. I think it was in like third grade. And I'm the only one standing. And all eyes turned and just stared at me. And I'm like, did you guys not hear the tugboat story? Like, well, I don't understand what's (laughs) happening here. Right? And so I remember vividly, like, her inviting me down. I hope someday I meet her again. I don't know who she was. And 
um, we went off to this little side room, and in this, they called it the blue room, and lo and behold, it was all blue. I still remember it. And I knelt down on, in front of this chair, and I remember praying, Lord, I, I understand. Like, I, I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that I need you. And I believe at that moment I was saved, and that's kind of where things ended. Like, <clears throat> even as a third grader, if you had asked me who Jesus was, I believe that I could articulate that Jesus is my Savior, and this is why. But as I got older, and we continued to kind of go to church when it, you know, sports was king for us, right? So I played soccer, and soccer typically took place on weekends, so that usually trumped everything. Um, or sleep, I guess. My dad was a police officer. If he had a rough week, then maybe sometimes we would stay home. I think growing up, what I was learning was that I was defining Christianity by church attendance. And so therefore, as a high schooler, it was, okay, if Christianity is defined by church attendance, then I need to be showing up more, so I joined a youth group, right? And this was back in the day when youth groups were like, I mean, really, it was kind of a youth group exper experiment that was going on, right? They're, they were kind of basically saying, well, what if we like got high schoolers or or um, junior hires or middle schoolers together in like large numbers and treated this like a club environment, right? And so we're just gonna, we're gonna do things on our own, we're gonna have fun, we're gonna, it, it was this big push like, well, Christians can have fun too, and that kind of became my religion, right? And so when I was between 16 and 17, this life that I knew, this kind of, I, I grew up in this family where we were kind of the people that everybody wanted to be. We lived on this street. You know, I grew up in the days when you could just, my mom would be like, hey, go play, right? So I would just walk out into the street and all the kids would come out in the morning and I wouldn't be home till dinner and my mom never even asked where I was or what I was doing, right? Because it was just, that was the culture. And then most everybody would come over to our house for dinner. It was this big kind of block thing. And I, I think growing up, a lot of people looked at our family and they were like, this is, the, this is the good life. Like, this is it. Like, this is the family that everybody wanted to be. Um, when I was like 16, 17, my parents went through a pretty major divorce. And um, for those of you who have you've had your parents go through divorce, you're gonna, you're gonna relate, it, it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard. Um, divorce is typically revolving around selfishness on somebody's part, right? And so as the kid, you feel that. Um, our, my parents' divorce was pretty ugly. It, it's, it, it destroyed everything, everything. It didn't just destroy my parents, it destroyed the entire family. I came from a big family. Um, I'm still, as far as I know, the only person in my family who still talks to everybody in my family. So it, it had a huge impact. And, and I tell you that to say this, the faith that I had learned, this understanding of what the good life was, this Christianity that fit into that, what I realized is I'd never really been discipled. I knew as a Christ follower how to have fun. I knew as a Christ follower how to go to church. 
I knew the right words to say, but when my life clashed with the realities of my faith in Jesus, my faith was deficient. So I'd never really been taught how to take the gospel and apply it to anything real. It was, it was kind of a, a faith where it was, hey, as long as everything looks good on the surface, then we're good. But what happens when everything falls apart? I got married young. I was 21 years old, met the love of my life in chemistry class. Um, I just remember she was, we were in separate lab partners at the time, and I looked over and I was like, man, that girl has really nice legs. <laughs> and so I wanted to get to know her, and she was a volleyball player. Um, like I said, we got married young. I was 21. I had a little bit of schooling left to do to finish graduating from college, and so we started our life. And I think, you've heard me say this before, the biggest privilege of my life to, to this point as far as my relationships go, is the Lord kind of grabbed hold of Christy and I together and said, I'm going to show you what discipleship actually looks like, meaning you're going to journey together through this. And so we began to search because my, my concern was that I didn't want to continue a life with Jesus if a life with Jesus just meant it was superficial. I didn't see the point. Like, what's the point? What's the point of wasting a Sunday to show up to church if it really has no power to dictate what's going on during your life? I began to question really strongly, like, is God actually powerful enough to give me strength to get through things like I'm going through? And so we went on a journey. And I, I've always been kind of entrepreneurial. Um, I told Christy when we got married, I want to own a restaurant someday, and at a young age, we did. Right? We owned a catering business and a restaurant. We did pretty well. Um, I, I think looking at, I don't know how old I was, but if I think like, okay, I'm 25, 25 years old, and looking at our life, I would say, if you had come to me back then, I would say, man, I've already accomplished everything that I had dreamed of and it feels empty. Like the good life that had been defined to me by my parents, I had achieved young. And now it almost felt like sinking into a depression. If this is all life is, then what's the point? Like is it really just about making a bunch of money and having a bunch of toys and freeing myself up to the freedom to do what I want when I want to do it? And if that's the case, and I've achieved that, then, and I'm young, then why? Why keep going? What's the point? Meaning, it felt, it felt easy. It felt really easy. I don't know everybody's story in here. I know some of yours. I, I know that when we talk about life, Everybody has somewhat experienced some, something that I just talked about, right? You, you've, you've definitely experienced heartbreak. You've experienced the ramifications of other people's sin and choices in your life, right? 
you've, you've dealt with some successes. I don't care how you define it, but you have. You've dealt with some failures. But the question is, what's the good life you're after? Like, what is it that's pushing you forward? What is it that drives you? When you wake up in the morning and you say, today's going to be a good day, how is that defined? What makes it a good day? Like, I think for a lot of us as we get older, what we'll say makes for a good day is, well, there were no issues today, right? Like, like peace, right? Like, just... Like, I didn't have to, I mean, in my job, that, it never exists. So if I defined it, defined it that way, I'd be in trouble, right? I don't know, you know, if any of you lead anything, if you're head of household, if you have a job or you lead other people, you know that leaders only exist to handle problems. If there's no problems, there's no need for leaders. So for a leader to say, well, I'm just trying to work myself out of problems goes, well, then that means I'm not leading anymore, Right? So for somebody who's in a leadership role, you can't define the good life as all this peace that came about during your day or makes a good day because there was no trouble. Right? There's always trouble. I've definitely come to the place where I don't define a good day by making a bunch of money because if you ever want to go into ministry, you don't go into it for money. right? I mean, you can make a lot more money doing something else. So what is a good day? And then as we look at life, I mean, if you really want to boil life down to simplicity, it's just one day after another, right? So if I have a good day and I compound those good days on top of each other and now I have a good week and then I have a good month and then I have a good year, that's a year of my life. I always say, okay, am I living the good life? Well, is it sustainable? These are the questions that the book of Ecclesiastes asks us. It asks us specifically, like, what are you living for? And it, it flips everything upside down to say, is it possible that what you're living for isn't worth living for? When you follow your life through, the end result of what you're living for and what you're putting all of your focus into, does it actually produce and get you where you think you want to go? And if you get there, then what? What do you do? What happens if you get there now, tomorrow? Then what? I, I think the book, the reason why I call this the good life is just because I think not only does it describe what we should be living for and how we should be living and from an individual who is extremely brilliant, it also causes us to question how we've been defining the good life for a very long time. This should be life-changing for us. Um, my prayer for you is that you would never have to go on the journey that I went on to figure out what's really important. But I also know that the Lord uses fire to show us what's really true. So when we dive in here, it's, it's an interesting introduction. Um, it's almost like the author here starts at the end. Because as we go through this, what you're going to find, like starting with next week, is the author's going to spend a lot of time explaining his own success and how empty it was. 
And so my job today is one, I want to explain to you who wrote this so that you can say, I can never attain what they attained. Because you can't. Like, the author Solomon was a king and he's considered the wisest man that's ever lived. He had more money than anybody's ever existed. Um, there was an article written not too long ago about the, the richest people in the world and Solomon's still number one. And the article basically said, and I don't know how they figured this out, but if you were to take Solomon's wealth and bring it into today's economy, his net value would be $2.1 trillion. I, I can't fathom that. Somebody says, you know, we have a few billionaires in the world. I can't fathom that. Right? I, I can't fathom that when they say $2.1 trillion, that that point one. Do you know how much money that is? <laughs> and that's just the point one. The point one, the point one, right, is more money than most people will ever even achieve. I mean, countries don't have point one. Here's the point one of what he has. It's phenomenal to think about. Um, I, I wanna, I wanna try and I don't know that I can because we're talking about a guy who has exceeded every aspiration that we probably have ever thought through. But ultimately, if, I hope this makes sense, we can kind of look at Solomon, Solomon as achieving the American dream in every way possible. And one of the premises that I'm gonna hold to and consistently talk about through this series is that the American dream is a farce. It's a farce. It's an illusion. It doesn't actually exist. The whole like white picket fence thing, the leave it to beaver, there's a reason why that was on television because that doesn't exist. Nobody's family looks like that. And many of you, you would watch that show now and you'd be like, I wouldn't want my family to look like that anyway, right? Because, and the American dream changes. Like, if, I, if you were just to write down right now, what is the American dream? The, the components, because culture changes so quickly, the components of that dream would change in, in my lifetime, right? I'm 47. Like, I remember, I was in college and there was no such thing. Well, the only person that had a cell phone was Zach Morris and he was on TV. Some of you know who Zach Morris is and some of you are like, I don't have a clue who that is and it's okay. I... Life changes so fast, it's, it's quick, and culture's moving so quickly, and the aspects of the American dream are, it's not just, like when I was growing up, it was, they would define it as keeping up with the Joneses, so you would look at what your neighbor, neighbor had, and you're like, we're, we're, we're in this competition to kind of keep up with each other, right? It, I don't know that that exists anymore. I think, I think the American dream is falling more into kind of the secular humanistic idea of just saying, I just want to do when, what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and be defined how I want to be defined. I would say that's the American dream right now, right? And I'm just going to tell you right now, that's going to change again. Because it wasn't that before. So I know that there's a component of the American dream that always revolves around funds and money, and we're going to talk a lot about that in this series as well.
what's the good life? Like, think about your week. What do you dream of? What is it that you say, man, if I just had this? Because everybody does that. We just don't say it. If I just had this, if I had a little bit more, if I had one more vacation, if I had one more child, if I had a child, if I had a husband, if I had a boyfriend, girlfriend, if I had this degree, then everything would change. The job that I want, the house, that new apartment, iPhone 14, because everybody needs an upgraded camera. I want to be an influencer on social media. I don't even know what that means. I've been trying to study that one for a little while. And I'm not sure, I know they're influencing people, but I'm not sure what toward, right? I haven't figured it out yet. Somebody's gonna have to educate me. I think it's, a, it's another social experiment. Well, I get paid by showing you my life. Somehow that influences you to desire to be me. And I, we were just at a conference this last week, and one of the statistics was that um, since influencers have come in, and I don't remember the exact statistic, but I remember they said, if you have a TikTok, I don't have TikTok. I think it's a social media platform, um, video style, right? Um, if you have a TikTok and you are under the age of 25, you are like twice as likely to commit suicide. I, I was fascinated by that. Why? Because you're being influenced, right? You compare yourself to what you see. That's just a component of the American, I guess that's keeping up with the Joneses. It's just been redefined. Before I kind of dive in to these very short verses, because there's not much to talk about here, because it basically just sounds hopeless, and I, I don't want us to go there. Um, I think that it's important for us to grasp that where we're ultimately heading is to understand that a life without understanding your creator through the person of Jesus is pointless. I've, I've tried to process the person that I would be if I had known Jesus the way I know him now when I went through what I went through. What would be different? I, I, I would venture to say that you would probably see a, a better man. Um, uh, you, you would definitely see a pastor who is able to say, here's how the gospel was applied to that area of my life. And I guess that's what I long for. I think, I think that there's a failure in the American church to help people understand that the gospel is supposed to be everything, not just a point of salvation. And I'm going to give you my quick biblical truth on this, and then we'll go. But if you're here today and you know who Jesus is, like you've accepted the gospel, so you... 
you've put your faith in Christ, you say, okay, I know that Jesus lived the life that I was supposed to live, and then he died the death that I was supposed to die, and, and he rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever, and I've accepted by his grace that gift of faith. This great exchange has transpired. Tony talked about it before we started singing that we get declared righteous, right? We're not righteous people, but we're declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus, not because of my blood. And, and I've often said it's like Jesus is a filter. It's like the Father looks at those who believe the gospel through a lens of the gospel, through the filter of Jesus' blood, and it's like we're covered in it. It's a beautiful picture. I think the American church has a tendency to say, there you go, Christian. Well done. And I think there's also a, a, a component of that that becomes extremely prideful. Because it's really easy when the gospel's only about salvation to say, look what I chose, God. I chose you. And your life can be dictated by that. We start believing things that I believed when I was a kid and it was like, well, I showed up at church, God, and I could have done something else, so here I am, so come on. Right? Like, I chose you in this moment. And I, I think that we miss it. The gospel is intended not just to save you, but to save you on a daily basis. Luke 9.23 says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's a word in there that's important. It's daily. Meaning, there are things in me. There are things in my life. There are things in my attitude. There are things in my desires. There are things that go on in my head that I have not yet invited Jesus to be a part of. And that separates me from him in certain areas of my life. It's beyond salvation. It's where have I not invited Jesus into my life so that he can actually help me apply the gospel to it so I experience that same salvation joy every day. That, that's not what we teach. It's not what I was taught, at least, right? Like, like what, it's, simple, it's called discipleship, right? Jesus walked around with 12 guys for three years and they still didn't get it. And what was he doing? He was teaching them how to apply him to every situation they found themselves in. And when they didn't, he would say, that's not good. You need to apply Jesus, me, to this. Right? So I think a part of the good life as we process this is it's a discipleship component to say what is it in you needs to die? What it needs to be denied? And what needs to be replaced with Jesus? And now here's where things get hard, guys. I'm just going to tell you straight up. Until Jesus comes back, this is the process we're going to go through the rest of our life. Because sometimes I feel like by his grace, something can be put to death and I can apply Jesus to it and then other times I can pull that back. The hardest thing about being a living sacrifice is you can step off the altar almost any time you want. So this is going to be my definition of good life. You guys come up with your own as we go through these scriptures. I think the good life is figuring out what needs to continually die in Kevin and the gospel be applied 
so that I can experience the joy of Jesus in everything that I do. And what you're going to find is there's no part of that definition that explains my current circumstances or that uses my current circumstances as a definition of what the good life is. All right. The book of Ecclesiastes, it's a weird name. Um, it, it, it's derived from a Hebrew word that I struggle to pronounce, so I'm not even going to attempt. Um, but it means pastor, preacher, an individual who calls together an assembly to teach. Okay, so this wasn't like, um, this word wouldn't be used for like, uh, for those of you who came to the hoedown in here Friday, wait, yeah, Friday, we got to do some dancing and line dancing and stuff. If you came, you know that was pretty awesome. Julie put that together. So it wasn't like Julie going, hey, I'm calling some people together so that we can hang out. The word is specifically used for an assembly to come together to impart wisdom on a group. So similar to this, right? It, it, ecclesia would be the Greek word, and that means church. But, so this is kind of like a gathering of people coming together to listen to wisdom and be taught how to apply it. And that's really what wisdom is, right? You can be the wisest person in the world, but if you don't actually live the wisdom, then you're not actually wise. So wisdom is the application of the knowledge that you've been given. So the goal here is, when, when we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, it's actually titled, hey, we gather together in front of a teacher who is attempting to impart how to teach us to apply the knowledge that we've been given. Now, this plays out really well in, in church world, right? So if you're visual like me, every time you open the book to Ecclesiastes, and I'm assuming that you're going to read this along with me, is you can picture God, the Holy Spirit, Solomon, if you should so choose, sitting there and calling you to sit at their feet and listen to what they have to say with the goal of applying what they're teaching you. That's what Ecclesiastes means. It said it was written by a guy named Solomon. Um, scripture talks about him a, quite a bit, actually. If you were to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings, there's a bunch of different places. 1 Kings 4, starting at verse 29, it says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. That is pretty awesome to think about. Like the sand of the seashore. I have nothing like the sand of the seashore. <laughs> so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. And it'll just go on and on and on and tell you about how wise this guy was. When we look at his life, he was the king so he's David's son. We read in verse 1 the words of the preacher. I kind of define that for you. He's, he's going to teach us the son of David king in Jerusalem. It's the kingdom at this point is, is still united together. King David, who we know a lot about, um, is off the scene. Solomon comes onto the scene, and he takes everything that David did and enhances it off the chart. He revisioned it. 
right? He, he built the temple and, and saw that come to fruition. He, his life is phenomenal. I mean, you can read the stories. He, it, it talks about the number of horses and chariots and stables that he had. I told you his value would come to about $2.1 trillion. I, 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 there, there's, no, there's no ability for us to comprehend the amount of power that he had. There was nothing as a human being on this planet that he couldn't do. From relationships-wise, we'll talk about whether this is wise or not. He had 700 wives. Sorry, 300 wives. No, that's right. 700 wives, 300 concubines. So 1,000 women at his disposal apparently lived around him. Uh, Calculating that, you, you process it. If he wanted to sleep with them, he couldn't sleep with them all once a year, right? I, I don't know what you do. Like, I feel like cuddling. Who do, who do you want? Pick a th- one of a thousand. So from a relationship standpoint, Solomon had his choice. Some of those relationships we know were built around political like, advantage. Like we know specifically that he married, he married, he married Pharaoh's daughter. And so the, the, the ruler in Egypt had a daughter, and Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, so we know that there was probably some political like, connection there, right? We know that he married women from all over the place, so I'm sure some of this was political, but the reality is when you look at who Solomon was, it says in Scripture that he's the wisest man that ever lived, he's the richest man that ever lived, and he has surpassed success in every way that you can possibly picture, that's who wrote this. And that's what makes the beginning of this book from the, we call this section wisdom literature. It, it, it's the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, who he also wrote that one, and that's pretty risque, to be honest, and fun. One day we'll go through that. Especially if you're married, you should go through it. It's fun. The wisdom literature is intended by God to impart wisdom upon his people. So we have this guy, Solomon. This is who he is. And he begins the book by saying, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now in case you're, not, you're missing this, because this is really a simple thing to understand, when that word he says all is vanity, that word all in the original language means all. There's no, it, it, everything. Life. Life in general is vanity. And I needed to find vanity for you. Um, when we say that somebody is vain, right, that, uh, man, they show a lot of vanity. Typically what we're saying is they tend to be like arrogant or they really in, in love with themselves. That's not necessarily the definition that's going on here, even though that has a connotation to it. The word here that's used is really hard for us in English to define because it means so many different things. It means fleeting, temporary. Um, It can mean vast, unattainable, trying to grab something that you actually can't grab. Um, Picture 
Picture yourself in a room uh, or a cold New England day and you walk outside and it's a little foggy and trying to like grab the fog. It's, it's unattainable. I think the best word that I've seen used in, in the way that I define this and in, in all of the, the scholars that I've read is it means breath. So it, you can't grab your breath. Right, like it, it just, it, it's gone. It happens constantly and it's so quick and it just goes. Like you sleep and don't even know you're breathing unless you know somebody else is breathing if they snore, right? But you sleep and you don't even know. Like you're sitting here now and you're not thinking about breathing. It's just happening. And it's happening hopefully not too fast, right? But consistently. So when I picture like vanity, how he's defining it for me, we, we're good New Englanders, right? So we live in the... Like, if you can picture New England in, the, in February. So let's picture Boston in February, okay? Everybody's favorite time. And, and you, you're in a warm house or wherever it is that you're residing, okay? Hopefully it's warm. If it's not, please come find us. We will make sure you're warm. It's warm. You walk out and you feel it. And then your warm breath hits the cold air and you see it. Poof right? But then it's gone. That's the best descriptive I can give of what this is defining. When he says all life, everything that, I mean, remember what he's accomplished, all that $2.1 trillion, all of that relationship, whatever, all of the fame, everything that I've achieved, everything that I've gotten, the good life that I sought after, he defines it as that breath in the wind. It means nothing. I can't even see it. And ultimately, the reason he's going to say that is because he says, I'm going to die. I can't take it with me. It's gone. In fact, as we dive deeper into Ecclesiastes, what he's going to say is, I could die tomorrow, which means I've worked so hard to achieve what this world says I need to achieve, what I think is the good life, and it could be gone tomorrow, and you know what's going to happen to that $2.1 trillion? I'm not going to tell you. Read it, but it goes bad. Right? It goes bad. It's, it's vanity. It's breath. Processing my past, processing even some things like this week, right, as we talk about how am I defining the good life, what am I looking to do, what is, what is today going to be? There are still things in my life that I would say, since Jesus hasn't been invited into that area of my life, I'm still working in this realm of vanity, Right? And isn't it fascinating that what you, when I told you at the beginning, because I'm wanting this to tie all the way back around, we spend a lot of time thinking about what we don't have. Isn't it interesting that what we don't have seems to take hold of our minds in some of the most powerful ways? God, you did this, but I don't have that. I know you showed up here, but would you show up there? And here's what's fascinating. He might. And then what do you do? Yeah, but I really need you to show up there. And it just, 
it's fleeting. Do you follow? It's that breath. When it's not, when it's, when it's something that is given and can be taken away so quickly, or it doesn't have kind of eternal significance to it, it's not actually producing joy that draws you to your creator in a more significant way, then it's just breath. It's just breath. That's how he starts this book. So what's breath right now for you? What, when, you, when I said, like, what's the good life, what, what you're picturing, are you, are you wrapping your life around that which is vapor? And it, how do you know? How do you know? Like, a lot of this is going to come down to, like, is, I guess in Solomon's relationships, we can question whether or not he employed wisdom or not, right? And we're going to find out that he didn't. So even the wisest person in the world is still a dirty, rotten sinner at heart. So, but looking at the individual who has achieved more than you're ever going to achieve in your lifetime by the American dream standard, he would say, it's breath. So does that mean it's hopeless? What do we do? This is what Jesus came here for. He came, yes, to to die for us, he came that his work would be fulfilled, that he would fulfill the law, all of these things that we've talked about building up to this, but he also came to show us what life looks like. Right? Like, if we say he lived the life, we start every, every time I express the gospel to you, I'll say, well, Jesus lived the life I was supposed to live. So if we look at Jesus' life, then we say, that's what I'm supposed to live like. Well, what was Jesus' life wrapped around? It wasn't vapor. It was wrapped around his connection with the Father. It was wrapped around understanding what the Father had called him to do in purpose. It was wrapped around fulfilling that which he had been given for the glory of God himself. It wasn't wrapped around pleasure. It, I, I can't find a place where Jesus took vacation. I, I mean, I love Disney, but Jesus never went. Right? Never. I never, like there's not a point where I go, he went to the beach. And I'm not saying that's bad. In fact, that can be really good. But what was his life wrapped around? It wasn't around seeking after just pleasure because we know he went to the cross and it said that he went in joy. Pain, suffering. He was, it wasn't around fame and popularity because he was constantly making people angry. It wasn't political because he was constantly butting up against the political regime that was there. He he taught things like, if you truly want to be 
If you truly want your life to not be vapor, then you have to do things like fight evil with love. And you're like, I don't understand that. Why would we fight evil with love? That if you really want to have your life not be revolving around vapor, then you have to do things like love your enemy. I'm going to suggest that the life of a Christ follower, the life of a true disciple, is the most fulfilling life we'll ever live and the hardest one we'll ever attempt. Because I really believe sin is easy. It comes natural to me. It comes natural to you. And, I, and what I'm learning is that which comes most natural to me seems to be the most unprofitable. For those of you who are here today and you're like, man, this was depressing. It's not. It's thought-provoking. It's, it's an attempt for recalibration of something that's so important that was sacrificed for. You weren't saved to go to church. You were saved to live a life that looks like Jesus. That that is a, a holy burden say holy because it produces joy, it's scary, but it's also a privilege that should produce joy in you as a Christ follower. This is the goal. This is the goal. The goal is that your life in Christ would prevent you from on your deathbed saying vanity of vanities. In Christ... This is not your life. It is not vanity. It's not breath. It's holy. It's purpose-filled. It's not fleeting. It's eternal. It's significant. It matters. So, in essence, what we're going to be doing going through the series is looking at how do, how does, how do we make our life matter? And ultimately, the answer is going to be in Jesus. If it's not in Jesus, it's vapor. And I want us to constantly be saying that. If it's not in Jesus, it's vapor. If it's not in Jesus, it's just breath. If it's not in Jesus, there's not even any handles for me to grab hold of it. If it's not in Jesus, it's temporary. For those of you who have been Christ followers for a while... I want to tap into this. You have done things in your life. I don't care how long you've been a Christ follower. I don't even care if it's just one thing. But you know it because you hang on to it. You've done something in your life that was for Jesus, and you know it, and the joy that was produced is overwhelming to you, and it had nothing to do with you and everything to do with him using you by his grace. And what you felt and the reason you remember it is because it wasn't vapor. I'm just 
You just tasted the good life. I love food metaphors because I'm a foodie. That's why the Lord says, come, taste, taste. Because when you taste it, you want more. And when you taste it, and the more you eat it, the more you realize that fast food is yuck. (laughs) Right? The more you eat it, the more you realize what actually tastes good and your definition of what is vapor and what is real begins to change. It's your palate changes for life. It, it changes because you desire to experience the joy and beauty that comes in living a life that is no longer defined by vapor, is no longer motivated by breath and it changes everything this is our journey so what do we do with it so today i mean this is introductory hopefully it excited you excites me and also at the same time go so much work to do lord but he'll do it so if you're here today and you've never you don't know jesus maybe you've heard him maybe you've gone to church but your life doesn't look like that. The gospel maybe has been applied in a salvation component, but it doesn't look like discipleship. Or maybe you're that person that's like, man, I've heard the gospel before. I've heard that Jesus loves me and died for me, but I don't even really know what that means. If that's you, here's where the good life begins. The good life begins in meeting your creator personally, and the only way you can do that is through Jesus himself. Your relationship to the Father is dependent upon your relationship to the Son. So you have to know Jesus. You have to. There is no good life without Him. You cannot learn from somebody that you do not know. There is no ecclesia without Jesus. There is no Ecclesiastes without Jesus. Because you're gathering with what? Vapor. Well, let's get a group of people together and talk about vapor. What's the point? Right? We have to know Jesus. So if that's you, then I would challenge you. I say this every week. Like, talk to somebody. You can come talk to me if you want. You can talk to anybody. But turn. do you know Jesus? Yes. Let's talk about Jesus. I want to know Jesus. That's where it begins. On the flip side of this, I'm also going to tell you, if that's you and you're seeking, you will never get answers till you know Jesus. You won't you will constantly be vapor. Have you talked? You talk to individuals who are, you can feel them kind of like trying to figure out who Jesus is and they're all over the place. It's here, 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 here. And I'm just like, okay, you're never gonna get it until you know Jesus. Why? Because he's the one that can answer those questions. I can't. I can point you here, but I didn't write this. So you gotta know the author. If for those of you who are Christ followers, I'm just curious, has your life actually been defined by discipleship or just are you still just basking in salvation? And I'm not saying don't bask in salvation, but are you growing at all? Or are you still seeking after the exact same vapor that you've been seeking after your whole life? You just added Jesus to it. Jesus throws out a few things that 
that identify a true believer in Christ, and, and it all revolves around what their life looks like. Some of them are hard, like you're going to be persecuted. I, I mean, if you're not being persecuted for the gospel, I don't know that you're actually living in Christ. People should look at you sideways that don't know Jesus. What needs to change? Like, even in an introductory like this, I can tell you right now that the Holy Spirit will move and reveal to you what you're living for that's vapor. I don't know that what you're living for is necessarily sinful, but I would say if it's vapor, then what's the point? I'm praying that Church at the Well would become a group of believers who are actually grabbing hold of Jesus and that your life is revolving around things that you can actually grab. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for heart. Lord, looking at my life, it's, I know where I've sought after vapor. Lord, I I know that even in moments you've allowed me to get what I desired so that I would know that it's empty. Father, I want to lift up anyone in this room right now who has never given their lives to Jesus. Lord, their life is currently defined by vapor. And Lord, I... I don't know, I don't know how they make it. So I pray, Lord, that you would regenerate their heart. That your Holy Spirit would move. That that heart of stone would be removed, that a heart of flesh would be given. And Lord, that they would be able to wrap their life around something they can grab hold of. I pray you'd give them boldness and courage to speak up. Lord, I pray for your church. Forgive us for calling discipleship that which you deem as vapor. Forgive us for defining discipleship only revolving around the American dream. Lord, I ask that as we go through this series that you would truly reveal to us where we have refused to invite you in. Lord, help us by your grace through the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death that which produces breath and replace it with Jesus. What a privilege. Thank you. Lord, don't let us leave here the same. Begin 
to work in our hearts. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.